0: The True Story of Lady Byron's Life, Part Two of Three, by Harriet Beecher Stowe, published in the Atlantic, September, eighteen sixty nine issue. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Lord Byron has described in one of his letters the impression left upon his mind by a young person whom he met one evening in society, and who attracted his attention by the simplicity of her dress, and a certain air of singular purity and calmness with which she surveyed the scene around her. On inquiry he was told that this young person was Miss Milbank, an only child, and one of the largest heiresses in England." lord byron was fond of idealizing his experiences in poetry and the friends of lady byron had no difficulty in recognizing the portrait of lady byron as she appeared at this time in her life in his exquisite description of aurora rabbi there was indeed a certain fair and fairy one of the best class and better than her class aurora rabbi a young star who shone o'er life too sweet an image for such glass a lovely being scarcely formed or moulded arose with all its sweetest leaves yet folded Early in years, and yet more infantine in figure, she had something of sublime in eyes which sadly shone, as seraphs shine. All youth, but with an aspect beyond time, radiant and grave, as pitying man's decline. Mournful, but mournful of another's crime, she looked as if she sat by Eden's door, and grieved for those who could return no more. She gazed upon a world she scarcely knew, as seeking not to know. Silent, lone, as grows a flower, thus quietly she grew and kept her heart serene within its zone. There was awe in the homage which she drew. Her spirit seemed as seated on a throne, apart from the surrounding world, and strong in its own strength, most strange in one so young. End quote some idea of the course which their acquaintance took and the manner in which he was piqued into thinking of her is given in a stanza or two the dashing and proud air of adeline imposed not upon her she saw her blaze much as she would have seen a glow-worm shine then turned unto the stars for loftier rays one was something she could not divine being no Sybil in the new world's ways, yet she was nothing dazzled by the meteor, because she did not pin her faith on feature. His fame, too, for he had that kind of fame, which sometimes plays the deuce with womankind, a heterogeneous mass of glorious blame, half-virtues and whole vices being combined— faults which attract because they are not tame, follies tricked out so brightly that they blind, these seals upon her wax made no impression. Such was her coldness or her self-possession. Aurora sat with that indifference which piques a prude chevalier, as it ought. Of all offenses, that's the worst offense, which seems to hint you are not worth the thought. To his gay nothings nothing was replied, or something which was nothing, as urbanity required, Aurora scarcely looked aside, nor even smiled enough for any vanity. The devil was in the girl. Could it be pride, or modesty, or absence, or inanity? Juan was drawn thus into some attentions, slight but select and just enough to express to females of perspicuous comprehensions that he would rather make them more than less aurora at the last so history mentions though probably much less a fact than yes so far relaxed her thoughts from their sweet prison as once or twice to smile if not to listen But Juan had a sort of winning way, a proud humility, if such there be, which showed such deference to what females say, as if each charming word were a decree. His tact, too, tempered him from grave to gay, and taught him when to be reserved or free. He had the art of drawing people out without their seeing what he was about aurora who in her indifference confounded him in common with the crowd of flatterers though she deemed he had more sense than whispering fucklings or than whittlings loud commenced from such slight things will great commence to feel the flattery which attracts the proud rather by deference than compliment and wins even by a delicate descent and then he had good looks that point was carried nem amongst the women now though we know of old that looks deceive and always have done somehow these good looks make more impression than the best of books aurora who looked more on books than faces was very young although so very sage admiring more minerva than the graces especially upon the printed page but virtue's self, with all her tightest laces, has not the natural stays of strict old age, and Socrates, that model of all duty, owned to a penchant, though discreet, for beauty. End quote. The presence of this high-minded, thoughtful, unworldly woman is described through two cantos of the wild, rattling Don Juan in a manner that shows how deeply the poet was capable of being affected by such an appeal to his higher nature. For instance, when Don Juan sits silent and thoughtful amid a circle of persons who are talking scandal, the poet says, "'Tis true he saw Aurora look as though she approved his silence. "'She perhaps mistook its motive for that charity we owe "'but seldom pay the absent. "'He gained esteem where it was worth the most, "'and certainly Aurora had renewed in him some feelings "'he had lately lost or hardened, "'feelings which perhaps ideal are so divine "'that I must deem them real.' the love of higher things and better days the unbounded hope and heavenly ignorance of what is called the world and the world's ways the moments when we gather from a glance more joy than from all future pride or praise which kindled manhood but can ne'er entrance the heart is an existence of its own of which another's bosom is the zone and full of sentiments sublime as billows heaving between this world and worlds beyond don juan when the midnight hour of pillows arrived retired to his in all these descriptions of a spiritual unworldly nature acting on the spiritual and unworldly part of his own nature every one who ever knew lady byron intimately must have recognised the model from which he drew and the experience from which he spoke even though nothing was further from his mind than to pay this tribute to the woman he had injured and though before these lines which showed how truly he knew her real character had come one stanza of ribald vulgar caricature designed as a slight to her there was miss millpond smooth as summer's sea that usual paragon an only daughter who seemed else cream of equanimity till skimmed and then there was some milk and water with a slight shade of blue too it might be beneath the surface but what did it matter loves riotous but marriage should have quiet and being consumptive live on a milk diet the result of byron's intimacy with miss milbank and the enkindling of his nobler feelings was an offer of marriage which she though at the time deeply interested in him declined with many expressions of friendship and interest in fact she already loved him but had that doubt of her power to be to him all that wife should be which would be likely to arise in a mind so sensitively constituted and so unworldly they however continued a correspondence as friends on her part the interest continually increasing on his the transient rise of better feelings was choked and overgrown by the thorns of base unworthy passions from the height at which he might have been happy as the husband of a noble woman he fell into the depths of a secret adulterous intrigue with a blood relation so near in consanguinity that discovery must have been utter ruin and expulsion from civilized society from henceforth this damning guilty secret became the ruling force in his life holding him with a morbid fascination yet filling him with remorse and anguish and insane dread of detection two years after his refusal by miss Millbank, his various friends seeing that for some cause he was wretched pressed marriage upon him marriage has often been represented as the proper goal and terminus of a wild and dissipated career and it has been supposed to be the appointed mission of good women to receive wandering prodigals with all the rags and disgraces of their old life upon them and put rings on their hands and shoes on their feet and introduce them clothed and in their right minds to an honourable career in society marriage was therefore universally recommended to lord byron by his numerous friends and well-wishers and so he determined to marry and in an hour of reckless desperation sat down and wrote proposals to two ladies one was declined the other which was accepted was to miss Milbank. THE WORLD KNOWS WELL THAT HE HAD THE GIFT OF EXPRESSION, AND WILL NOT BE SURPRISED THAT HE WROTE A VERY BEAUTIFUL LETTER, AND THAT THE WOMAN WHO HAD ALREADY LEARNED TO LOVE HIM FELL AT ONCE INTO ITS SNARE. HER ANSWER WAS A FRANK, OUTSPOKEN avowal OF HER LOVE FOR HIM, GIVING HERSELF TO HIM HEART AND HAND. THE GOOD IN LORD BYRON WAS NOT SO UTTERLY OBLITERATED THAT HE COULD RECEIVE SUCH A LETTER WITHOUT EMOTION or practise such unfairness on a loving trusting heart without pangs of remorse he had sent the letter in mere recklessness he had not seriously expected to be accepted and the discovery of the treasure of affection which he had secured was like a vision of lost heaven to a soul in hell but nevertheless in his letters written about the engagement there are sufficient evidences that his self-love was flattered at the preference accorded him by so superior a woman and one who had been so much sought He mentions with an air of complacency that she has employed the last two years in refusing five or six of his acquaintance, that he had no idea she loved him, admitting that it was an old attachment on his part. He dwells on her virtues with a sort of pride of ownership. There is a sort of childish levity about the frankness of these letters, very characteristic of the man who skimmed over the deepest abysses with the lightest jests before the world and to his intimates he was acting the part of the successful fiancée conscious all the while of the deadly secret that lay cold at the bottom of his heart when he went to visit miss milbank's parents as her accepted lover she was struck with his manner and appearance she saw him moody and gloomy evidently wrestling with dark and desperate thoughts and anything but what a happy and accepted lover should be She sought an interview with him alone, and told him that she had observed that he was not happy in the engagement, and magnanimously added that, if on review he found he had been mistaken in the nature of his feelings, she would immediately release him, and they should remain only friends. Overcome with the conflict of his feelings, Lord Byron fainted away miss milbank was convinced that his heart must really be deeply involved in an attachment with reference to which he showed such strength of emotion and she spoke no more of a disillusion of the engagement there is no reason to doubt that byron was as he relates in his dream profoundly agonized and agitated when he stood before god's altar with the trusting young creature whom he was leading to a fate so awfully tragic yet it was not the memory of Mary Chaworth, but another guiltier and more damning memory that overshadowed that hour. The moment the carriage doors were shut upon the bridegroom and the bride, the paroxysm of remorse and despair, unrepentant remorse and angry despair, broke forth upon her gentle head. "'You might have saved me from this, madam. You had all in your power when I offered myself to you first. Then you might have made me what you pleased.' but now you will find that you have married a devil in miss martineau's sketches recently published is an account of the termination of this wedding journey which brought them to one of lady byron's ancestral country seats where they were to spend the honeymoon miss martineau says at the altar she did not know that she was a sacrifice but before sunset of that winter day she knew it if a judgment may be formed from her face and attitude of despair when she alighted from the carriage on the afternoon of her marriage day it was not the traces of tears which won the sympathy of the old butler who stood at the open door the bridegroom jumped out of the carriage and walked away the bride alighted and came up the steps alone with a countenance and frame agonized and listless with evident horror and despair the old servant longed to offer his arm to the young lonely creature as an assurance of sympathy and protection from this shock she certainly rallied and soon the pecuniary difficulties of her new home were exactly what a devoted spirit like hers was fitted to encounter her husband bore testimony after the catastrophe that a brighter being a more sympathizing and agreeable companion never blessed any man's home when he afterward called her cold and mathematical and over pious and so forth it was when public opinion had gone against him and when he had discovered that her fidelity and mercy her silence and magnanimity might be relied on so that he was at full liberty to make his part good as far as she was concerned silent she was even to her own parents whose feelings she magnanimously spared she did not act rashly in leaving him though she had been most rash in marrying him not all at once did the full knowledge of the dreadful reality in which she had entered come upon the young wife she knew vaguely from the wild avowals of the first hours of their marriage that there was a dreadful secret of guilt that byron's soul was torn with agonies of remorse and that he had no love to give her in return for a love which was ready to do and dare all for him yet bravely she addressed herself to the task of soothing and pleasing and calming the man whom she had taken for better or for worse young and gifted with a peculiar air of refined and spiritual beauty graceful in every movement possessed of exquisite taste a perfect companion to his mind in all the higher walks of literary culture and with that infinite pliability to all his varying capricious moods which true love alone can give bearing in her hand a princely fortune with which a woman's uncalculating generosity was thrown at his feet there is no wonder that she might feel for a while as if she could enter the lists with the very devil himself and fight with a woman's weapons for the heart of her husband there are indications scattered through the letters of lord byron which though brief indeed showed that his young wife was making every effort to accommodate herself to him and to give him a cheerful home one of the poems that he sends to his publisher about this time he speaks of as being copied by her he had always the highest regard for her literary judgments and opinions, and this little incident shows that she was already associating herself, in a wifely fashion, with his aims as an author. The poem, copied by her, however, has a sad meaning which she afterwards learned to understand only too well. Quote, there's not a joy the world can give like that it takes away when the glow of early thought declines in feelings dull decay tis not on youth's smooth cheek the blush alone that fades so fast but the tender bloom of heart is gone ere youth itself be past. then the few whose spirits float above the wreck of happiness are driven o'er the shoals of guilt or ocean of excess the magnet of their course is gone; are only points in vain the shore to which their shivered sail shall never stretch again End quote. only a few days before she left him for ever, Lord Byron sent Murray manuscripts in Lady Byron's handwriting of the siege of Corinth and Parisina, and wrote. Quote, i am very glad that the handwriting was a favourable omen of the morale of the piece but you must not trust to that for my copyist would write out anything i desired in all the ignorance of innocence there were lucid intervals in which lord byron felt the charm of his wife's mind and the strength of her powers bell you could be a poet too if you only thought so he would say there were summer hours in her stormy life the memory of which never left her when byron was as gentle and tender as he was beautiful when he seemed to be possessed by a good angel and then for a little time all the ideal possibilities of his nature stood revealed the most dreadful men to live with are those who thus alternate between angel and devil the buds of hope and love called out by a day or two of sunshine are frozen again and again till the tree is killed but there came an hour of revelation an hour when in a manner which left no kind of room for doubt lady byron saw the full depth of the abyss of infamy which her marriage was expected to cover and understood that she was expected to be the cloak and the accomplice of this infamy many women would have been utterly crushed by such a disclosure some would have fled from him immediately and exposed and denounced his crime lady byron did neither when all the hope of womanhood died out of her heart there arose within her stronger purer and brighter that immortal kind of love such as god feels for the sinner the love of which jesus spoke and which holds the one wanderer of more account than the ninety and nine that went not astray She would neither leave her husband nor betray him, nor yet would she for one moment justify his sin, and hence came two years of convulsive struggle in which sometimes, for a while, the good angel seemed to gain ground, and then the evil one returned with sevenfold vehemence. Lord Byron argued his case with himself and with her, with all the sophistries of his powerful mind." He repudiated Christianity as authority, asserted the right of every human being to follow out what he called the impulses of nature. Subsequently, he introduced into one of his dramas the reasoning by which he justified himself in incest. In the drama of Cain, Ada, the sister and wife of Cain, thus addressed him. Cain, walk not with this spirit. Bear with what we have borne, and love me. I love thee. Lucifer, more than thy mother and thy sire? Ada, I do. Is that a sin too? Lucifer, no, not yet. It one day will be in your children. Ada, what? Must not my daughter love her brother Enoch? Lucifer, not as thou lovest Cain. Ada, oh my God! Shall they not love and bring forth things that love out of their love? Have they not drawn their milk out of this bosom? was not he their father born of the same soul womb in the same hour with me did we not love each other and in multiplying our being multiply things which will love each other as we love them and as i love thee my cain go not forth with this spirit he is not of ours lucifer the sin i speak of is not of my making and cannot be a sin in you whate'er it seems in those who will replace ye in mortality ada what is the sin which is not sin in itself can circumstance make sin of virtue if it doth we are the slaves of lady byron though slight and almost infantile in her bodily presence had the soul not only of an angelic woman but of a strong reasoning man it was this writer's lot to know her at a period when she formed the personal acquaintance of many of the very first minds of england but among all with whom this experience brought her in connection there was none who impressed her so strongly as lady byron there was an almost supernatural power of moral divination a grasp of the very highest and most comprehensive things that made her lightest opinions singularly impressive no doubt this result was wrought out in a great degree from the anguish and conflict of these two years when with no one to help or counsel her but almighty god she wrestled and struggled with fiends of darkness for redemption of her husband's soul she followed him through all his sophistical reasonings with a keener reason she besought and implored in the name of his better nature and by all the glorious things that he was capable of being and doing and she had just power enough to convulse and shake and agonize but not power enough to subdue one of the first living writers in the novel of romola has given in her masterly sketch of the character of Tito the whole history of the conflict of a woman like Lady Byron with a nature like that of her husband. She has described a being full of fascinations and sweetnesses, full of generosities and of good-natured impulses, a nature that could not bear to give pain or to see it in others, but entirely destitute of any firm moral principle.' she shows how such a being merely by yielding step by step to the impulses of passion and disregarding the claims of truth and right becomes involved in a fatality of evil in which deceit crime and cruelty are a necessity forcing him to persist in the basest ingratitude to the father who has done all for him and hard-hearted treachery to the high-minded wife who has given herself to him wholly there are few scenes in literature more fearfully tragic than the one between romola and tito when he finally discovers that she knows him fully and can be deceived by him no more some such hour always must come for strong decided natures irrevocably pledged one to the service of good and the other to the slavery of evil the demoniac cried out what have i to do with thee jesus of nazareth art thou come to torment me before the time the presence of all pitying purity and love was a torture to the soul possessed by the demon of evil these two years in which lady byron was with all her soul struggling to bring her husband back to his better self were a series of passionate convulsions during this time such was the disordered and desperate state of his worldly affairs that there were ten executions for debt levied on their family establishment and it was lady byron's fortune each time which settled the account toward the last she and her husband saw less and less of each other and he came more and more decidedly under evil influences and seemed to acquire a sort of hatred of her lady byron once said significantly to a friend who spoke of some causeless dislike in another my dear i have known people to be hated for no other reason than because they impersonated conscience the biographers of lord byron and all his apologists are careful to narrate how sweet and amiable and obliging he was to everybody who approached him, and the saying of Fletcher, his manservant, that anybody could do anything with my lord except my lady has often been quoted. The reason of all this will now be evident. My lady was the only one fully understanding the deep and dreadful secrets of his life who had the courage resolutely and persistently and inflexibly to plant herself in his way and insist upon it that if he went to destruction it should be in spite of her best efforts he had tried his strength with her fully the first attempt had been to make her an accomplice by sophistry by destroying her faith in christianity and confusing her sense of right and wrong to bring her into the ranks of those convenient women who regard the marriage tie only as a friendly alliance to cover licenses on both sides When her husband described to her the continental latitude, the good-humoured marriage, in which complacent couples mutually agreed to form the cloak for each other's infidelities, and gave her to understand that in that way alone could she have a peaceful and friendly life with him, she answered him simply, I am too truly your friend to do this when lord byron found that he had to do with one who would not yield who knew him fully who could not be blinded and could not be deceived he determined to rid himself of her altogether it was when the state of affairs between herself and her husband seemed darkest and most hopeless that the only child of this union was born lord byron's treatment of his wife during the sensitive period that preceded the birth of his child and during her confinement was marked with paroxysms of unmanly brutality for which the only possible charity on her part was the supposition of insanity moore sheds a significant light on this period by telling us that about this time byron was often drunk day after day with his friend richard sheridan there had been insanity in the family and this was the plea which lady byron's love put in for him she regarded him as if not insane at least so nearly approaching the boundaries of insanity as to be a subject of forbearance and tender pity and she loved him with that love resembling a mother's which good wives often feel when they have lost all faith in their husbands principles and all hopes of their affections still she was in heart and soul his best friend true to him with a truth which he himself could not shake in the verses addressed to his daughter lord byron speaks of her as the child of love though born in bitterness and nurtured in convulsion a day or two after the birth of this child lord byron came suddenly into lady byron's room and told her that her mother was dead It was an utter falsehood, but it was only one of the many nameless injuries and cruelties by which he expressed his hatred of her. A short time after her confinement she was informed by him, in a note, that as soon as she was able to travel she must go, that he could not and would not longer have her about him, and when her child was only five weeks old he carried this threat of expulsion into effect.' here we will insert briefly lady byron's own account the only one she ever gave to the public of this separation the circumstances under which this brief story was written are affecting <clears throat> lord byron was dead the whole account between him and her was closed for ever in this world moore's life had been prepared containing simply and solely lord byron's own version of their story more sent this version to lady byron and requested to know if she had any remarks to make upon it in reply she sent a brief statement to him the first and only one that had come from her during all the years of the separation and which appears to have mainly for its object the exculpation of her father and mother from the charge made by the poet of being the instigators of the separation in this letter she says with regard to their separation The facts are, I left London for Kirby Mallory, the residence of my father and mother, on the 15th of January, 1816. Lord Byron had signified to me in writing, January 6th, his absolute desire that I should leave London on the earliest day that I could conveniently fix it. It was not safe for me to undertake the fatigue of a journey sooner than the 15th. Previously to my departure, it had been strongly impressed upon my mind that Lord Byron was under the influence of insanity. This opinion was derived, in a great measure, from the communications made me by his nearest relatives and personal attendant, who had more opportunity than myself for observing him during the latter part of my stay in town. It was even represented to me that he was in danger of destroying himself with the concurrence of his family i had consulted dr bailey as a friend january eighth respecting the supposed malady on acquainting him with the state of the case and with lord byron's desire that i should leave london dr bailey thought that my absence might be advisable as an experiment assuming the fact of mental derangement for dr bailey not having had access to lord byron could not pronounce a positive opinion on that He enjoined that, in correspondence with Lord Byron, I should avoid all but light and soothing topics. Under these impressions, I left London, determined to follow the advice given by Dr. Bailey. Whatever might have been the conduct of Lord Byron toward me from the time of my marriage, yet supposing him to be in a state of mental alienation, it was not for me, nor for any person of common humanity, to manifest at that moment a sense of injury. End quote nothing more than this letter from lady byron is necessary to substantiate the fact that she did not leave her husband but was driven from him driven from him that he might give himself up to the guilty infatuation that was consuming him without being tortured by her imploring face and by the silent power of her presence and her prayers for a long time before this she had seen little of him On the day of her departure she passed by the door of his room, and stopped to caress his favourite spaniel, which was lying there, and she confessed to a friend the weakness of feeling a willingness even to be something as humble as that poor little creature. Might she only be allowed to remain and watch over him? She went into the room, where he and the partner of his sins were sitting together, and said, "'Byron, I come to say good-bye,' offering at the same time her hand." Lord Byron put his hands behind him, retreated to the mantelpiece, and, looking round on the two that stood there with a sarcastic smile, said, When shall we three meet again? Lady Byron answered, In heaven, I trust. And those were her last words to him on earth. This ends part two of The True Story of Lady Byron's Life by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Read for you by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, who invites you to join her for Part 3.